The text for this morning's message can be found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. If you are using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1,443. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's jump right in here with this battle that's going on between saints and this lion and ask some questions about it. My first question is, why is he roaring? If you hear him roaring, you run away, get away. If you want to sneak up on somebody and eat them, you don't roar. So immediately I'm confronted with an issue here about, hmm, what am, is my view of Satan, uh, full enough to handle this passage? What's the first animal that comes to mind when you think of the devil? Snake. That's right. Snake. Serpent. Now snakes, snakes sneak. They don't roar. Before you know it, they're on your heel. You're dead. You got to be careful about snakes. They look like the leaves or the branch and they're on you and you're gone. Well, lions who roar aren't like that. Hmm. So Satan, Satan is subtle, according to Genesis 3, more subtle than anything. He sneaks up on you and he's there and he can get you. A roaring lion is not subtle, anything but subtle. You know he's there a mile away. So subtlety is not the issue here, I don't think. What is the issue here? I think it's power. Lions are dangerous not because they're tricky, but because they're so strong. Nobody defeats a lion one-on-one. Nobody. The only hope, if you're in, in touch with a lion that's hungry and roaring because he's hungry, is if you've got a big rifle and you're a good shot, or a big net comes down on him from some crane, or God intervenes. But if you and the lion have to do it by yourself, and he's roaring because he's hungry, you're a goner. Subtlety, no subtlety, doesn't make any difference. The issue is power. He is strong. Lions are big and strong. 
Now, Peter's point here, I think, then, is not that uh, Satan is clever or subtle, but that he's very, very, very powerful. Question, what's the power in this text? What power do we have to be alert to, watch out for, and resist? What's the power in this text? Verse 9 gives the answer. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing, here comes the answer, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now what that verse says is, the power or the jaws, the devouring jaws of the lion are the suffering of the saints. Read it again, because I don't, I I want you to get this for yourself out of of verse 9. Resist him, knowing that the same experiences of suffering, same as what? Same as what? Resist this lion, knowing that the same battle, resisting, fighting, is going on everywhere. And he calls it suffering. So my conclusion is, the power of Satan that we are to fight against is the power of suffering to devour our faith. When you suffer, you're tempted to say three things. He doesn't care, he doesn't have the power to help me, or he doesn't exist anymore. He's gone, he's out of here, because I'm suffering and he's not helping. And that's the devouring power of suffering. So verse 8, I think, makes it clear that the power we're dealing with here is the power of Satan to design suffering, to destroy and devour our faith. Now, let me give you an illustration of that from Revelation. Remember, Jesus wrote letters to seven churches or inspired John to write letters to seven churches on his behalf. The church in Smyrna was having it worst, probably. And it says in verse 10 of Revelation 2, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Underline that word. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison. Isn't that amazing? The devil is going to throw you in prison. That's your suffering. The devil is going to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now compare that to what this text says. Satan is going to take some of those Christians, go throw them in jail, going to beat them up for 10 days, and some of them he's going to kill. He's going to kill them. And Jesus, speaking through John, says, be faithful. Peter would say, resist him firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith while you're in prison and I will give you the crown of life. Or as Peter says in verse 10, I will perfect and I will uh, confirm and I will strengthen and I will establish you. you. Which means you can successfully, successfully resist the devil and be killed by him. You got that? You can successfully, successfully defeat the devil and be killed by him. Because 
All he can do is kill you. That's all he can do. Well, you weren't going to live but two seconds anyway, according to James. This life is like two seconds. And then forever, heaven or hell. And if Satan beats up on you for ten days in prison, and you resist him firm in your faith, or as John says, be faithful unto death, all he can do is kill you. And then eternity in glory, infinite ages of glory. That's not much victory for Satan. In fact, it's a great defeat for Satan. And he'll be real angry if he doesn't get you into the lake of fire with him. So don't misunderstand this battle here and what victory consists in. The battle is to resist the devouring effects of suffering on your faith. Satan only eats faith. Anything else is hors d'oeuvres. He doesn't give a hoot about your physical suffering ultimately. If he can't have your soul and destroy your faith, he's angry. The meal is yet to be eaten and he's roaring still. And therefore the battle to be fought is not to save your life. God may grant that. James got his head cut off. Peter got rescued by an angel. Both of them had victory. The battle is when the sword was coming down, was he faithful unto death? Was he looking the lion in the face as the jaws came down and saying, I'm home free guy, you lose. I mean, that is the major battle to be fought when Satan is roaring and trying to devour our faith with suffering. So do you see the difference now between the snake-likeness and the lion-likeness of the devil? Don't misunderstand me. If I had another sermon to preach, I'd preach about the snake and the snakiness of the devil and the need to be vigilant against deceiving power of lust, say, or of... Anger and bitterness or all kinds of other things. But here, that's not what this text is about. You've got a lion like Satan here. He's roaring. You can hear him a mile away. He's not sneaking up on anybody. In fact, he's showing big, multicolored pictures of blood so that you know what's coming. And you get real afraid and start to call God into question and wonder if he's real and your faith begins to waver. That's what he's after in this text. No sneakiness about it. You're going to suffer, Christian. Look, here's what it's going to look like. To see if he can destroy your faith. So, when verse 8 says, be sober in your spirit, be alert, that doesn't mean because he's going to sneak up on you. That's what I used to think. I would read that and take it out of context and say, oh, be sober, be alert, means he's a snake. you got to watch out. He might get you. Well, he's roaring. You know he's coming. So what does this mean? Be sober, be alert. It's real simple. When you fight a lion, don't be drunk. I can beat a drunk man. You missed. You missed. I can beat a drunk man. So a lion can take a drunk man in one piece. Be alert. Don't be distracted. Be sober. Don't be drunk. Because if you're going to fight a lion who's hungry, you need all your faculties about you. That's the point of be sober, be alert. This resisting that we're talking about here is not avoiding a snake hidden in the path. This is facing him head on as it comes. You see what it's going to mean. You tremble inside and you got to fight or go down and have your faith 
devoured. Now, this raises a bunch of questions. We'll just deal with a couple here. What, question number one that that raises for me is, is my suffering, is the suffering of the church that's in view in this book, the jaws of Satan or the judgment of God? I said last week it was the judgment of God. And three weeks ago, I said it was the judgment of God. And I get that from chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, which, which says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So the suffering that Christians are coming into in this book is the judgment of God to purify them and make them fit and ready for heaven. It's a refiner's fire, chapter 1, verse 6. It's a refiner's fire to burn the dross out of our lives. Well, wait a minute. You just said it was Satan that was doing it. It's his jaws coming down. So is it God's judgment or is it Satan's jaws? Which is it? Make up your mind. What's the answer? Well, the answer is Job. The answer is Paul. The answer is both. Remember Job? Satan, let me have him. If I take him, I can devour his faith. You just hedge him about. You make everything easy for Job. Let me have him. And God says, okay, take him. And when he takes him and everything he has, Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the next verse says, and with his lips he did not sin. It's not blasphemy to say what he said. It was Satan and it was God. Same thing with the Apostle Paul. This thorn in the flesh, what was that? Paul has seen visions. The temptation was great to be boastful about his visions. Nobody else had been taken up into the heavens like that, probably. So I've got visions. And so God sends a thorn in the flesh to humble him, to keep him from being too exalted. And what does he call it? A messenger of Satan. Wait a minute now. This thing is sanctifying the Apostle Paul, keeping him humble, keeping him from boasting. And you call it a messenger of Satan? Yep. I just love, I love the sovereignty of God over Satan. Hear that, Satan? I love the sovereignty of God over Satan. That he takes all of Satan's designs, super, I don't know what the word is, overrules them. And takes them into his power and makes them serve his holy purposes in the lives of the saints. I just love the thought that whenever Satan gets the upper hand in my life and makes my mouthiness come off to my wife or my children in a way that I'm ashamed of, God can move in. In fact, he already moved in and somehow take that sin, bring me to humiliation because of it and use it for the good of my children. Use it for the good of my wife. Use it for the good of this church. In some amazing way, that's the way God's sovereignty works. So, the answer is yes, it is the jaws of the lion. And yes, it is the judgment of God. And this one is subordinate to this one. And Satan's design in all my suffering is destructive pain. And the end of my faith and my soul God's design overarching that and taking it up into his power is constructive empowerment and purification and preparation for glory. Isn't that great that God is bigger and stronger than Satan? 
And so we don't have to choose between those because the Bible doesn't choose between them. There are satanic elements to all suffering and there are sovereign divine elements to all suffering. And this one has the control over, over this one. That's one question that I think you need to bear in mind. Here's another question. Can Christians be devoured? Verse 8 says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The word is to swallow whole, like the fish did Jonah. Same word in Jonah in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. Your adversary, the devil, wants to just make you disappear, vanish. You're out of here. You're gone. You're going with him to the lake of fire. That's what devour means. The question is, can that happen to me and you? Verse 9 says, resist him. And the reason you're to resist him is because he's trying to devour you. He's trying to devour you. Resist him. Is that a charade? It's war games. They're blanks. They're all blanks. There are no bullets in the gun. Nobody gets killed in this game. It's a, it's just, just resist him because, just do it. Nothing's really going to happen if you don't, because it doesn't happen to Christians. Is that right? Well, I think the devouring is real, and it sure sounds serious to me when Peter says, resist him, resist him. Doesn't sound like a game. Sounds like heaven and hell are at stake here to me. So I ask again, can true born again Christians possibly be devoured by the devil? And the answer is no. Because true born again Christians always fight. They fight. That's, that's what it means to be a true born-again Christian. True born-again Christians have the Holy Spirit within them so that when they see the lion coming, they don't say, Ah, nothing's at stake here. I don't need to fight. I don't need to stir up my faith. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't need to be with other believers. I don't need to be vigilant over my eyes and make sure that flesh doesn't get the upper hand because nothing's at stake here. True born-again believers do not talk like that. True born-again believers have the Holy Spirit inside who embraces the Word of God that He inspired. They hear the Word, resist Him now. Fight, because your life depends on it. I'll give you the success, but you fight. And they fight. If you don't fight, you're probably not born again. At least if you go on and on and on and on, slipping away from the vigilance of faith and fighting sin and the devil, you've got no reason to think you're saved. It doesn't really matter what you prayed a long time ago. It doesn't matter what card you signed. It doesn't matter baptism. It doesn't matter what your parents did. Salvation is real. It's real. It's real. It's the work of God in a human heart. And there are effects from it. And one of the effects is when the lion comes, you fight. Um, there's a promise in this, in this passage which is just staggering. 
Um, it's in this passage. It's also way back in chapter one. This is my last sermon on First Peter. I feel real affectionate towards Peter. I don't feel like I've been giving him justice, but zit. So I feel like you know, cutting a, a bridge back to chapter one and kind of putting it all together. But here's one little effort at that. In chapter one, verse five, it says that Christians are kept. Precious word, kept by the power of God. Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Through faith. Through resisting the devil firm in your faith. If you say, I'm kept. I'm kept by the power of God. And you don't resist him firm in your faith, you're contradicting God. God says, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you by my power through your faith against the devil. And you say... Well, I'll take that, but I won't believe. It's like, it's like I go into a, a king's hall, this great king in some enchanted empire, and he, he takes the ring off his finger. And he puts the ring on my finger and he says, uh, Sir John, as long as you wear this ring, you will be invincible. I say, I'll be invincible? You will be invincible. I write that down. I will be invincible. And I walk out. I take the ring off and I sell it. Pocket the money. And I say, I'm invincible. He said, I got it written here. You will be invincible. There's something wrong with that. It's something wrong with hearing God say, you are kept by my power through faith. For a salvation ready to be real. And then say, I'm kept by his power. And if Satan comes, I don't need to fight by faith because I'm safe. It's like taking off your ring. Now, God will not let the elect, born of God, called, take off their ring. The evidence that you are a child of God is that you keep the ring on. The badge, the badge of the children of God is battle. The badge of the children of God is battle against sin and the devil. Not perfection. That badge, that crown, that comes later. But the fight. I will fight. I will not lay down my shield. I will not take off my ring. I will not rip off my badge. I'm a believer. And he will keep me safe through faith that he himself works in me. Verse 10 is the ground of our assurance. Let's close with pondering this verse. It says, after you've suffered a little while, I think that means a little while here on the earth, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory, and oh, the riches of that word called, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will do it. I love Charles Spurgeon's, he's got this uh, message he says, I love, I exult in the wills and the shells of God. <laughs> Here's one of them right here. He will perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. There's our assurance, brothers and sisters. There's the rock of our confidence that we are eternally secure. That the one who called us to glory will get us to glory. You see that in verse 10? I called you to glory, and if I called you to glory, I'm going to get you to glory. What does that sound like in Romans 8? 
Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. That's what, that's what we're talking about here. Peter just says it a little differently. And he doesn't mention justification. He just says, if I called you into my eternal glory, I'm going to get you to my eternal glory. I'm going to perfect you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. You're going to make it. Through faith, through the battle, which I will always give you the final victory in. Now, let me just encourage us with two closing phrases. You see this phrase, the God of all grace there? The God of all grace, verse 10. You know why that phrase, I think, is here? I think it's here for those of you this morning who... Who are listening to me right now and saying, you know, Pastor John, you, you get all fired up about these things and, uh, I don't. In fact, I'm not, I, I'm not even to first base. You look like you get all into this and I sit here and I'm looking in from the outside. I do not feel what you feel. I'm not a spiritual person, if that's what you call. I'm not what you are. I'm not what these people around me seem to be. I am not qualified. There's so many people who look at the gospel, who hear glorious promises like this, and they say, oh, this is not me. Now let me just say a word from this phrase to you. Yeah, you're right. You're not qualified. Neither was anybody in this room, nor are we now in ourselves. Grace, by definition, precedes qualification. Just take that home with you. Grace precedes qualification. If you're sitting there and saying, I don't qualify for glory. I don't qualify for being here. I feel like I shouldn't even be in this room. Why are you talking about these things? It's okay. You do belong here. Because the God of all grace is to move in. He is moving in. Right now as I'm talking, He's moving in. And He, before you qualify, calls you. That's why you haven't gotten up and left yet. He's, he's working to call you. And what you're to do now is not qualify. You're not to qualify by any performance. You are to stop trying to qualify and simply receive grace. That's why this phrase is here. This promise in verse 10 is for everybody in this room who will take it. Who take it and love it and live in it and say, I don't qualify, but I'll take it. This is glorious that if he calls me, he'll keep me, he'll get me to glory. I'll take it. And I invite you to take it this morning and come up and, and pray about it with one of the prayer teams afterwards. One more phrase and we're done. Phrase in verse 11. To him... To the God of all grace, to Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, dominion is simply the power behind the grace. Dominion is superior strength. What this doxology says is, God of all grace, the God of all grace, has more strength than the lion. He's got more strength than the lion. He is more powerful. He's got dominion over the lion. And so if you're sitting there saying, okay, I hear grace, which feels beautiful, 
But, but I'm a real hard case. I'm a really hard case. Then hear the word dominion. Dominion. He's got dominion over every human being. He's got dominion over kings. He's got dominion over that snow out there and whether you get home or not. He's got dominion over your health. He's got dominion over all the demons in hell and all the angels in heaven. No hard case is too hard for God. So put those two together. The God of all grace and to him belongs the dominion forever and ever. And let them encourage you this morning to draw near and take the promise for your own. Don't walk out of here saying, boy, that verse 10 is awesome for them. Don't do that. Let me close with how you fight now. You meet the devil. He's coming to you with suffering. You see it coming in some form or another. Don't say, oh, I'm eternally secure. There's nothing big at stake here. Because it doesn't, So it doesn't matter whether I fight or not. Flick, turn on the TV. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Rather say, say it to Satan. The God of all grace, all grace, all grace has called me into his eternal glory, eternal glory in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Remember him? Christ Jesus. He has called me in Christ Jesus. And after I have suffered a little while from you, scratch me, maul me, eat me, kill me. After I've suffered a little while from you, he, the God of all grace, with all dominion, will perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish me. I resist you in that promise. You cannot win over me. You kill me, but I'm going home. Fight. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray for those that you're calling right now that your call would be so powerful that they would not be able any longer to resist and that they would yield and confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior and embrace verse 10 as the banner over their lives from this day forward. If there's any person that needs any spiritual counsel or any encouragement or any help in any way, may they come and pray with our teams. Lord, we commend ourselves to you. Use this snowstorm outside for your glory. We love your purity. We love your power. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, Amen.